This is The Christian Educator brought to you by ChristianTeaching.org, and this is episode number one where we're going to look at 10 bad approaches to biblical Greek. Now, biblical Greek was called Koine Greek. It was the Greek in the day of Jesus, and it was the common Greek used by most of the world. And so the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Now, often you hear the phrase, it's Greek to me. And that just means that there is some kind of connotation to the language that means it's mysterious. And, you know, it's it's for the really, really smart people. So, I mean, you look at that and you say, that's not for me. And, in fact, it might even get a little bit annoying because certain people will talk about the Greek and you feel like you don't really know what's going on, so you get a little bit frustrated and you kind of begin to hate the language. Part of that is because Greek has been misused in various ways, and so we're going to consider how not to misuse it, and therefore maybe make it a little bit more attractive to the rest of us. So number one is don't think that having tools is as good as knowing the language. So many people may ask the question, why should you learn Greek with all the tools that are out there? After all, you have concordances, you have dictionaries, you have commentaries. Well, let me ask you this question. Why should you learn Arabic if you have Google Translate? I mean, why couldn't you just move to an Arabic country if you had Google Translate? Well, because the issue is bigger than that. See, the point is about good communication, and that requires the ability to think in the language with an appreciation for the cultures that formed it. Another reason we must learn the actual language itself is that Greek is a living language. A dictionary cannot give you the flow and emphasis of the text, and so the language itself is important. Another reason is that even Greek scholars differ in certain areas, and so knowing the language preserves us from viewing the opinion of certain scholars as being an infallible guide to what we think are hidden biblical keys underlying the English text. And an example is how Jehovah's Witnesses use uh, Greek to intimidate their audiences uh, and, and, and kind of give them this idea that they have the true interpretation of the text. Well, that can be dangerous in some senses, so we need to know the language ourselves so that we can keep others accountable. Number two, don't think that Greek is a code. A code is a system of exact representation, so you have a list of symbols that correspond exactly to some kind of equivalent. How does this work in Greek? Well, to use Greek like a code is to think of it as just being English, but it's just hidden under a bunch of symbols. And so we could think of it with English minds and completely miss the point. Let me give you a funny example. Suppose somebody were to see that in the original Greek, as you will often find, that the definite article appears before Peter. Now, the definite article is just the word the. That's how we think of it in English. That means we could translate it the Peter. Okay. Now, by the way, this is all sarcasm, but it's just kind of funny. So, look, the definite article is before Peter. That means we should translate it the Peter. Peter means rock, therefore Peter was called the rock, and who is called the anything without being a wrestler? Aha, so we're thinking in English minds, and so these are good conclusions up till now. Now, let's let's think about this further. Peter's dad's name was John, and you can see that when Jesus called him Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon son of John. So in English, that translates to Peter Johnson. So... He was called Peter the Rock Johnson. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. 
Now, let's 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 do this. I think that we should vote in Dwayne Johnson as the next rightful pope. After all, the connection is clear. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, Greek doesn't really work that way. But by that silly example, you just see that it's absurd to think that Greek is English. And by the way, the explanation for that is um, definite articles don't always mean the. Sometimes they just refer to distinguishing something or showing that it is the subject of a sentence or many, many other purposes. So that doesn't really work, and we should avoid that. It's not a code. Number three, don't isolate words from their context. Words have a meaning based on their position in the text. And so let me give you an example. The Gospels use what are called historical presents. So uh, one of the Gospels will say, let's say, uh, Jesus goes to the temple. So it's not saying he's going presently to the temple, but really it is denoting a past action. Why is it doing that? Because it's a literary device to draw the reader into the narrative. So if we look at tenses and words just for their bare meaning, they may mislead us if they are having that tense or meaning because of their larger context. So we need to remember that Greek is a literary language just as much as English is, and so the rules don't always apply as blanket statements. So we need to be careful not to isolate words from their context. Number four is don't retranslate a passage without good authority or personal expertise. The reality is there are so many good English translations out there that just by comparing four or five of them, comparing different styles of translation, you're going to get a pretty good sense of the passage and what the different words can mean. So instead of retranslating a passage, you should do this. If there is some kind of nuance that you have read in a commentary, don't say it should be better translated this way. Rather say that there may have been the implication by the Apostle Paul, let's say, that he had this concept in his mind when he was using this word. But don't retranslate the passage apart from what any other translation says, because the likelihood is it's probably not going to make a good translation. So always remember the difference between connotation, which is what it implies, and denotation, which is what it means directly. We translate based on denotation, what it means directly, and we don't translate based on connotation, which is really what lies behind and underneath the text. Number five is don't dismiss the value of English translations. That kind of goes back to what we just said. The meaning of the text is still transmitted in English translations. A translation of God's word is still God's word, so we need not be afraid to use translations. And even in the preface of the King James Version, it says that. So comparing translations usually gives you a good range and nuance of the meaning of individual words in Greek. While translations often lose nuance and subtlety, they rarely ever lose meaning. So don't go bashing English translations if you know Greek, because they're good translations and we need to respect the work that has been done. Number six, don't forget the semantic range of words, especially prepositions. Now, semantic range just means the range of meaning a word can have. So let me give you a practical example. The Greek preposition n is roughly, very, very roughly equivalent to the English word in. 
But the problem is, is that people see that, they see an approximate equivalent, and so they think that every time they see the Strong's number for N in the Greek, they can retranslate it to mean in. The problem is, is that N is one of the widest used prepositions in the New Testament, and it doesn't necessarily always mean in. It can mean many, many different things. Uh, and so we cannot use it just as if it is a rote way of translating the preposition. There's a theological example that's important. Uh, for instance, you have the two prepositions anti and huper. So in terms of limited atonement, people say that, um, let's say, huper usually means for. So it says Christ died for all, huper. But it only says that Christ died instead of many instead of those who would be saved, and that's where it uses anti. So it, it kind of makes this divide saying where it uses the word anti, it refers to only the people Christ would save, and so he was only a substitute for them. When it comes to huper, he died just in a general sense. He died for the world. He died, well, the problem is, is that that neglects the fact that both of these prepositions were very much intersecting in their use in the Koine period. And so that is no longer a viable argument. Let me give you number seven. Number seven is don't comment on the Greek for its own sake. The Greek word for repent is metanoia, repentance. And so let's picture a minister talking to his congregation and he says, here the Lord Jesus calls them to repent, metanoia, and that is how he begins his ministry. Well, what's that going to do for the audience? They have no clue if the guy quoted a Greek word, but they just heard him say a word they've never heard before, and if he moves on, that benefited them nothing. It just makes him look smart, and in turn, the people think he's a little bit more arrogant than the rest. There is a good way to do that. Uh, if you told him that metanoia meant mind change and not penance, as Catholic translations say, then it might be more meaningful. And then you could go into Martin Luther's uh, discovery of this, and you could bring it into the practical side of things. And you could bring it around that way if you want to do a word study in that way. But just using the bare word, it does nothing for the audience. And so we need to not be quote-unquote Greek scholars just to make ourselves look smart. Number eight, don't rely entirely on an interlinear. So you've seen interlinears. They have the English words uh, at the top and the corresponding Greek words at the bottom. And so basically that's meant to give you the word-for-word -word translation. And so people look at that almost like the very order is a better translation than what the English gives us. Well, the problem is, with interlinears, they're kind of sketchy. For one, people who know Greek good enough to use it don't need an interlinear. And people who have to use an interlinear usually don't know Greek good enough to use it. So it's kind of this really weird thing, and it's probably better to rely on Greek commentaries rather than making our own assumptions from what we see in the interlinear. Number nine, don't commit the sin of anachronism. Anachronism is interpreting past events with present eyes. In other words, we're looking at it with foresight and thinking that the situation then had the same connotations as it does now, even though it developed significantly. Let me give you a classic example. You may have even heard this in a sermon, Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16. 
the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So you can picture a minister saying, now power is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. Therefore, the gospel is the dynamite of God unto salvation. Well, there's a problem with this because dunamis had no meaning related to dynamite at the time when Paul wrote Romans. Paul wasn't even thinking about dynamite. He was thinking about power. And so that's how we translate it. And that's how we interpret it. Paul had no clue that this would develop into the word dynamite, especially in the English language, which didn't exist at that point. So why are we so arrogant to think that we can interpret Paul's thoughts better than he can? Now, there's also unfortunate examples of this in King James onlyism, where people have even gone to say that a person must learn English in order to understand the true word of God. So they're pretending that English is what God inspired, uh, even above the Greek of Paul's day. That's just terrible anachronism, and it leads to terrible situations. Number 10, don't hate the language because others have abused it. God chose to inspire the New Testament in Greek words, and we should respect that. Greek is full of depth and beauty that cannot be ignored, and it is arrogant to think that Greek is only for scholars because it was the day's common language way back when. So all saints should have an interest, or at least a respect, for that. And so yes, even lesser educated people can be arrogant too by rejecting Greek studies. This needs to be done because God has chosen to inspire the New Testament in Greek. There are right ways to use it, and we might do another lesson on how to do that. But for now, let's just remain hopeful that Greek, when properly used, is a great, great resource. Thank you for joining us for this Christian Teaching Education session. Don't forget to visit us on our website at christianteaching.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And we also have a weekly newsletter where all of our content will be reviewed weekly and deposited to your inbox on Saturday morning. So don't forget that. And if you have any feedback, just let me know, micah at christianteaching.org, and I would love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm your host, Micah Hackett. God bless.